Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, December 1st, 2009, at least in the United States it is. And we're certainly glad to have you here today. Our show is sponsored by Learn Central and Illuminate. Today we're talking to Dan Willingham, whose book, Why Don't Students Like School? is a terrific book. Uh, and Dan and I actually have a little bit of history, which is fun, so we'll get to talk about that. If this is your first time at Illuminate, we want to make you aware uh, of the platform and also of Illuminate's social network for education called LearnCentral.org. Uh, Facebook like in scope, it has Illuminate baked in. In fact, you can hold a free webinar like this as long as it's educational and open to the public. Um, and it does have great content sharing features. So we encourage you to go to LearnCentral.org and check it out. Coming up on conversations.net and futureofeducation.com on Thursday, Curtis Bonk on his tome, The World is Open, huge book, should be another great interview. On December 8th, Rachel Dredson, the producer-director of Frontline's Digital Nation program, is going to be on for a PBS interview, should be fun. Angela Myers on December 9th talking about her book, Classroom Habitudes. December 10th, Elizabeth Kana on her book, Virtual Schooling. January 6th, Sir Ken Robinson. January 7th, Alan Michelle from Home Inc. And February 3rd, James Paul G. And others that are filling in. So it should be a great couple of months coming up. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I just want to show you briefly where, what the controls are and how you can participate. Uh, you'll see the participant window on the top left of your screen. At the bottom of that participant window, there is a hand with a green up arrow. When we go to Q&A, that's a chance for you to raise your hand and I can actually give you the microphone. In order to take the microphone to be able to ask a question, please do go up to Tools of Audio, Audio Setup Wizard, and make sure that your mic is configured. Um, because if you don't and there's a delay, we may have to go to the next question. To the right of that uh, hand with the green up arrow are some emoticons. There are ways for you to give feedback, a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, or a thumbs down. Uh, it's certainly fun to, to be able to indicate how you're feeling about something, and it's fun for the for, uh, it'll be fun for Dan to see your response to things. There's a green check and a red X. If Dan wants to ask a question, he can ask a yes, no question. He can actually ask a more complicated question, and we'll set up some polling. But for yes and no, you can actually respond with the green check and the red X. Below that participant box is the chat area. You can send messages there. Everybody sees those messages. You can actually send a private message to someone else in the room using the drop-down box, but do be aware that both Dan and I see those as moderators, so we'll be um, so nothing's fully private there. And uh, to the right, you'll see the whiteboard where the orientation screen is, and I'm going to give you a chance now to participate. So I'm giving you um, the ability to actually modify the whiteboard, and we're going to go to a map. And on this map, to the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star at the end. Go ahead and click on that star, and then click on the map to let us know where you're listening from. And you can also uh, do a shout out in the chat, because uh, it does look like we have some folks internationally, and it's fun to hear uh, where you're from, and if there's more than one person listening, where you're from. Dan, you've attracted a nicely diverse audience. Very excited. I love our Indian contingent. So glad to have you joining us on these calls. 
I'm a little okay. afraid about the emoticons, so I have to say. <laughs> Don't worry. The thumbs down rarely gets used. Okay. And I'm quite certain it will not be used today, unless you, you're citing an example of someone else's work that people <laughs> want to react negatively to. Okay, good to know the ground rules. Okay, and now I'm, yeah, well, there's, there are no set ground rules there, but it's rare to have a speaker actually get a thumbs down. Just the fact that you would take the time to spend with us today, uh, there should be plenty of applause. Thanks, I'm, I'm going to move to the map of the U.S., and if you wouldn't mind, for those of you in the United States doing the same thing, you can let us know where you're listening from. Looks like Peggy bought your book through Kindle. You know, I've, uh, I have to say, Peggy, I love the new Kindle software for the PC because it lets me download previews of books. I'm not actually buying the books to read on the Kindle. I bought one book to read that way. But just that I can download the previews is wonderful. Kind of a chance to, it's like browsing in a bookstore and being able to read the first few chapters. Okay, so I'm going to turn. It looks what a great crowd we have here. So 87 people so far. Sure, delighted to have you. I'm going to turn that off, and I'm going to move us forward and, and uh, ask Dan to introduce himself and get us started. So Dan, uh, would you tell us a little bit about your background? And um, you know, in the book, you mentioned that you're applying cognitive psychology to K-12 uh, education. So would you kind of describe for us what that is and why it's important? Sure. So cognitive psychologists are basic scientists. They don't, they don't always deal with applications of science to, to real-world phenomena. They're like a research chemist or research biologist or, or whatever. And they study how people think and how people solve problems, how people remember, how attention works, how perception works, and so forth. So um, that it was in cognitive psychology, and uh, this, my subfield was cognitive neuroscience. I studied um, how the brain changes as we learn new things, and so that was my degree. And for about the first 10 years of my career, that was pretty much all I did. I did basic scientific research on that topic, um, and I, I ended up in education really uh, rather unexpectedly. I, I just was asked as a cognitive psychologist to talk about what scientists know about the mind. Now, what scientists know about the mind is, of course, learned from the laboratory, very, very different environment uh, than the classroom. We know about, we know something about uh, mental processes like learning and like attention and so forth, but always in the laboratory. And the, the critical difference is that in the laboratory, um, as scientists usually do, we specifically isolate things, uh, uh, isolate mental processes in this case to make them simpler to study. So when we study learning, we're trying to take motivation out of the equation. Um, that's great if, if you're trying to study learning, but of course things aren't isolated in the classroom. Everything is operating at the same time. Uh, an outcome for the teacher and student is a product of the student's motivation and social forces and uh, whatever the teacher is doing and so forth. So it's interesting uh, to try and apply what we know from the laboratory to classroom situations, but it's inherently a very tricky process. So you you created some criteria for the inclusion of principles in the book, and I'll and I'll let you get to that. Um, that obviously relate specifically to that. Um, do you want to just mention briefly what the connection is? 
Sure, yeah, I mean, because of that, that potential um, complication, it, it can be that uh, a phenomenon that we see in the laboratory very, very reliably won't really apply to the classroom very well. So I think the example I use in the book is a, a very obvious and intuitive one. Repetition is good for memory. We know that if you repeat things again and again and again, you're, you're, they're going to stick with you more. That's good for memory. But it, it, and that's probably true in the classroom, but it's obvious that repetition is terrible for motivation. You can't just ask a sixth grader to repeat something again and again and again and say, well, you know, it's, that's going to be good for your memory. That's the way you're going to learn it. So one criterion um, I used in, for including things in the book was that this, this had to be a principle that really was true all the time. Um, and it wouldn't reverse in the classroom. It was uh, unlikely to go wrong in subtle ways. So like the repetition example I just gave, every teacher already knows that. And that's not the kind of thing I would worry about. But other more subtle interactions I, wor I would worry about. Another criterion was that it had to be something that teachers wouldn't already know. So for example, the idea that attention is important for learning is perfectly true, but I can't imagine there are many teachers who don't already know that. I didn't really have anything to add, so I didn't include it. And then the final criterion was that it had to be an effect that was pretty sizable, that uh, a, pay, a, a teacher paying attention to that effect versus ignoring it would really have a sizable impact on education. Are people responding to your book um, by saying, gosh, that was obvious? Or are, are you getting some of the, boy, that really surprised me kind of responses? Interesting. A, a little of both. Um, I, I frequently, people say that, that it, it, it does make sense to me, this sort of, uh, uh, my gut was telling me that this was true, but I had been told other things. Uh, and so that's, I think, the most frequent comment I get is, is uh, thank you for confirming what I kind of thought was already true, but other people have been telling me wasn't true. I've been racking my uh, brain all day to try and remember uh, who uh, wrote this, but I've been reading, I've read a number of books related to what I'm imagining are cognitive psychology. Um, is Dan Ariely someone in that field? Uh, Dan's a behavioral economist, and he would, uh, I don't know whether he would call himself a cognitive psychologist. Uh, you know, I, I think of him as one. You know, I think anyone who's doing great work, I just figure they're a cognitive psychologist, even though they may not know it. <laughs> well, one of the things that I remember, and I, I, I wish I could remember if it was actually in Dan's book, was this idea that once you identify some of these um, cognitive or psychological principles that the, the behavior, your behavior can actually change because of the recognition of them. And right. d uh, does that apply as well here? Do you think that people are reading some of these principles, which we'll get to, and it's just the fact of identifying the principle makes it easier to um, understand circumstances and, and change the way we do things? I think, I think it absolutely does. And this is uh, usually called uh, metacognition, M-E-T-A, cognition. And it, it just means thought about thought. Uh, so knowing how the cognitive system works um, might mean that you're, or ought to mean that you are motivated to try and regulate your thoughts in ways that you believe are going to be productive. So absolutely, uh, that is, that's a very real phenomenon and, and can be quite powerful. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the specific stories, but it, you know, it had to do with ways in which we 
we maybe had a, a tendency to think a certain way, but once we recognized that um, there was a principle involved that um, gave us a different outcome than we expected, then somehow it kind of became natural to, to think otherwise. So hopefully as we go through these points, um, we'll, people can indicate if they're having that kind of response. Right. Before we do so, though, I want to, to talk about a, a little bit about a history between you and me, because I wrote a Britannica blog post article yep. that you responded to. And it was very fun for me to reread that in the light of having you come on. Uh, do you want to summarize quickly the faults you found with my sort of enthusiastic <laughs> desire to promote Web 2.0 in education? Uh, sure, and it, it can be summarized very briefly. The, <laughs> my, my concern was that you were not cons sufficiently concerned with uh, the cognitive demand placed on teachers by the the, the Web 2.0 methods you were suggesting uh, be used in the classroom. So I think we, you and I largely agree on the potential benefits to students. And my argument was not all, but some of those uh, uh, benefits at least can be accrued by methods that teachers already know about, that teachers are told are good methods to use, but teachers end up not using in the classroom, namely project-based methods. So divide students up into small groups or, or have them work as a whole class and give them a project, give them something to work on that is uh, sort of authentic. It's, it's, it's uh, something that is embedded in a real-world context. They're going to collaborate on it. They have a sense of agency, a sense of urgency, and so forth. Uh, and, and you might ask them to, uh, you might encourage the students to have some input into picking the project and so on. And these are, these are terrific ideas. And if you look at surveys of teachers, teachers say these are great ideas, this is the best way to teach students. If you go and observe in classrooms, very, very few teachers use these methods. Um, exactly why is not known. My strong hunch, my, my hypothesis is that it's because these methods are so demanding uh, of teachers. Um, if you plan, if, if you use a lecture method, you can plan everything the night before and you know exactly what you need to know and what you don't need to know. If you're doing a project and you're trying to guide students on a project, it's much less predictable what knowledge you need to bring into the classroom. And in addition with the project method, you have to make many more decisions uh, in the moment. Students come to you with an idea for a project or we want to take it in this direction. You've got to decide on the spot whether or not this is going to be effective, whether this is a, a whether the students are going to be able to handle it. So I think projects are, are terrific, I think. And again, the, I, I think the Web 2.0 has a lot of these characteristics of cognitive demand on teachers that I'm concerned about. Gosh, I said I, that I could summarize it briefly. And right. I'm on and on, sorry. <laughs> well, listen, I, um, I wanted to make that's the idea. Yeah. It was very fun for me because I don't mind being criticized, and I especially don't mind being criticized by somebody as sharply intelligent as you are. So it was, it's, it's fun for me to read that pushback. And I'm wondering if, um, uh, if you're noticing any cultural changes that relate to the use of Web 2.0 uh, in, in the larger context of culture that you think are beginning to have an impact on education. 
When you say cultural uh, changes, do you mean within education or culture more broadly in the states as I experience it? I meant this, I meant more broadly, meaning okay. um, it, has there been since since you and I wrote those pieces, yeah. has there been uh, a, a larger um, movement toward the use of Web 2.0 in, in non-educational circumstances, which are um, which are going to have or are having an impact on expectations for what teachers do in schools. That's a really interesting question, and you know, it, it, it's um, I'd, I'd really be guessing. I mean, my I, I don't I don't sense that, but I also don't have a lot of confidence in my own judgment on that. I don't I don't feel that I sort of uh, take the pulse of uh, uh, technology culture uh, very accurately. So I'm I'm reluctant to really make much of a guess on that. I think inevitably, I mean, I would say it, it certainly seems that we're moving in that direction. Well, good. Okay, well, we'll we'll put that into the past. Uh, I'm going to cede to the greater your greater authority, and um, but really enjoyed the dialogue, and um, and I'm really glad to have you on. So, your book was quoted as I've got your website up here. The the Wall Street Journal brilliant analysis, the Washington Post a triumph. How do you feel about how the book ended up? Uh, I'm I'm pleased. I'm definitely pleased with how the book ended up. Um, this is a, a type of writing that I've done in the past and, and that I certainly enjoy. Um, I haven't gone back and looked at it very carefully to tell you the truth, but I think I'm, I'm, think I'm happy with it. I'm, certainly, I'm, I'm very happy with the feedback I've, I've gotten from teachers and, and others. It felt to me like you were, you were making the ultimate uh, personal self-test, which is writing a book about teaching which in itself is a teaching act. So you, you, did you ever go through the process of saying, am I doing a very good job of these things myself in the writing of the book? I, I absolutely did. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely tried to think about the, applying the principles that I was talking about. Um, and to some extent there, I, I won't say it, it's becoming second nature to me, but it's, it is certainly something that I'm used to doing because this is, uh, these principles are things that I've thought about doing in the classroom for a long time as well. Well, I really enjoyed reading it, um, and, I, and I think you did a great job. So, generous, thank you. Uh, I don't feel like I'm being generous because I, uh, I hope that you accept that as a as a, an authentic um, compliment. So, in the book, you identify nine principles that match these um, criteria that you discussed. Um, that they had to be true all the time, and I'm quoting from the book. Right. Um, that they had to be based on a great deal of data that um, ignoring the principle would have a sizable impact on student performance, and it had to be fairly clear to somebody what to do with the principle. Right. So how much did that narrow the field? I felt like it narrowed it a lot. Um, but one thing that when I, when I first brought this proposal to publishers, every single publisher said, couldn't you make it 10 principles? Why are there nine? Um, because boy, it would be really good to have you know the ten things that every teacher needs to know, or something like that, as the title. And I said, I I can't think of ten. I only know of nine. Um, and I certainly, you know, I spent several years uh, just sort of every time I I knew that I wanted to do this book several years ago, and every time I sort of thought I saw a principle shaping up, I would jot it down. And nine is all I thought of. I think there's lots of other stuff you could uh, tell teachers, gee, if you did this, this might help. So for example, somebody was recently telling me, you know, one thing we know is that distributing 
practice and learning is pretty good for memory. Uh, so if you're going to spend, say, 10 hours uh, studying something, you're much better off spending two hours for each of five days as opposed to doing five hours for each of two days. Why didn't you put that in the book? Um, and I mean, I won't go into why I didn't put it in the book, but there are lots of things like that that are sort of laboratory findings that we know are true that potentially you could tell teachers. But part of it, I feel like there's so many fields that one could uh, say to teachers, gosh, you really should know something about this. And a teacher should know something about cognitive psychology, right? That's my bid here uh, in this book. But you could say teachers should really know something about emotional development and social psychology. They should really know something about developmental psychology. They should know something about rhetoric. They should know so uh, something about sociology. They should know something about the diverse backgrounds their kids come from. I mean, it's, it's almost endless. And, and my feeling is um, that, that might be okay, but the sociologists and the developmental psychologists and each of the representatives of those fields should be prepared to come to teachers with, okay, here's my field on one piece of paper, essentially. Here's the, here's the nine things or the five things or whatever it is that I think really you ought to know because this is a big deal and it's reliable. And I, you don't have to become an expert uh, sociologist or cognitive psychologist or whatever, but here's some big stuff that would be useful for you to know. So when someone asks you, what do you say in the book, what's your 30-second answer? Uh, I'm sorry, I, did, I missed that question. Um, so when someone says to you, uh, if they want a summary of the book, do yeah. you have a 30-second answer that you give? Um, yeah, well, 30 seconds probably. You can't do the nine principles in 30 seconds, but my 15-second my, my answer is, uh, more or less what I just said, there are a few principles from cognitive psychology that will be pretty intuitive to you uh, that are really useful for you to know and the way to apply them is fairly clear. Okay, so let's jump kind of right in. Um, and, and I thought it might be interesting to talk about them. Uh, I, I know they're in order, I'm sure, for a very good reason. But it occurred to me that we're not going to be able to cover them all in the kind of depth that's in the book. So obviously, we'll, we'll point people to the book. But some of them are more intuitive than others. And which ones do you find are the, are the least intuitive? Oh, uh, certainly the one that's least intuitive is uh, the claim that uh, teachers, that, that, that learning styles basically don't exist no evidence to support the idea of learning styles. That's the one that, and I learned that uh, five years ago or something. I didn't know how deeply embedded in American culture, at least, that belief is. Uh, I was giving a talk to a teacher's group, and I just sort of mentioned in passing this idea of learning styles, and by the way, there's no evidence at all to support that, and that they turned into a mob. I, they sort of stopped the talk and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got to go back a slide and, and, and let's cover that. And since then, I've discovered that um, everybody believes this. It's not just teachers. Uh, all of my undergraduates believe that learning styles is uh, an established scientific fact. So that's definitely the one that, uh, that surprises people. So it seems like, uh, so that's chapter seven, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is because the list here actually says it's chapter seven. Yes. And uh, would you sum up as children are more alike than different in terms of learning? Now, I, um, I had a very personal experience with this, which is at some point in our parenting, and we have four children, I read 
that uh, the differences in math scores between countries could almost be completely related to the number of hours spent in math, doing math. And, and that it was debunking the idea that there are people who are sort of naturally talented in math, or at least that the variation isn't as great as we thought. And it had much more to do with the amount of time spent studying math. And it yeah. actually changed how I worked with my own children, meaning I, I was less willing with our two younger children to say, oh, that's OK, you just don't get math. I spent a lot more time saying, you'll get this. Let's just right. take time and do it. Right. So is that sort of what you're talking about? That's one aspect of it. This is so learning styles. What you're talking about is ability, and ability is different than style. Uh, so very briefly, and I'll, I do want to get back to the what you said about mathematics. Um, learning styles is the idea that you just have a different way of thinking. Um, but a, a simple way to think about it is that it's always better to have more ability. But having one style or another overall is not better. So the, the most commonly uh, auditory uh, versus visual auditory and kinesthetic learners, it's also very big. And, um, so there's nothing inherently better about being a visual learner versus But being good at mathematics is, is good. So that's the difference between ability and style. Um, what you said about mathematics in particular is, I think, really important. And there is definitely a perception in this country that if you're, you know, some people are just not good at math. And as you say, it, it, it becomes a little bit of a, uh, a sort of an excuse for the students that, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just not a math person. Uh, and the truth is, I think that uh, I'm making this number up, but 90% of students, I think, are, and I'm, I'm not the only one who's, who's bandied that figure about, by the way, um, uh, would be capable of doing mathematics up through high school. That you know, they could master the math that we would all agree is, is important mathematics for citizenship, under basic understanding of probability um, and the type of math that you in, encounter in the world. And you're absolutely right. I think time on task is one factor that's really important. The other is the way that mathematics is introduced at very early ages. Did your son break up or did you pause? Uh, I paused. Okay. <laughs> Once again, I realized it was going on and on and on. So I wanted to see whether you wanted me to talk about that more or whether, uh, whether well, no, you wanted I, to move again, on something else. I, it's not my intention to, to drill down into the personal, but it, it, because of, of my own experiences, I'm, it, it maybe helps us to explore a little. Yeah. So I had a daughter who had a math teacher who would turn out the lights and do all of the math through PowerPoint in the period after lunch. Yes. And she was convinced that she just wasn't good at math because she wasn't getting it. And, and I felt some comfort in your, uh, you know, at one point you, you, you're talking about sort of the balance that, uh, you know, what makes a good teacher and the balance between building the relationship uh, with the students and then actually, you know, having uh, engaging material. Right. And, and I thought, well, that was sort of, that would sort of be, you know, a very easy way to think you weren't good at math when, in fact, there wasn't any student-teacher engagement, which probably meant that there wasn't a lot of um, sense of understanding. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the personal relationship is, is clearly very important. There's some recent data collected here at UVA indicating that in pre-K and kindergarten, the personal relationship seems to, between the teacher and the student, seems to predict more 
um, about the student's uh, reading ability at the end of the year than anything else, or reading gains uh, by the end of the year than anything else. That basically, when you're talking about the little, little kids, they really can't learn from a teacher with whom they don't connect. I think with older kids, they probably get a little more tolerant of, of teachers with whom they don't really feel very much of a connection. They're still able to learn from them, but it's still important. OK, well, knowing that we, we're not going to be able to cover all territory today, mm -hmm. um, one of the other ones that seemed to me to be kind of a hot button, at least for the audience that, that typically listens into these shows, would be your second principle or chapter, uh, factual knowledge precedes skill. So do you kind of want to talk about that a little? Right, I mean, the, the argument is that um, Factual knowledge is, is really closely intertwined with what we normally think of as critical thinking skills. Uh, and there's certainly abundant data showing that uh, highly skilled people, um, or I shouldn't say highly skilled, but skilled people um, uh, who are very good thinkers within their own knowledge domain, when they go to another knowledge domain, they're really, they're really not such good thinkers. I mean, it's, or I shouldn't say they're not such good thinkers, they're not especially good thinkers. So for example, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I do experiments, and I'm, I'm pretty good at experimental design. Uh, I'm very good within the cognitive psychological domain. If you put me in a clinical psychology experiment or a social psychology experiment and you ask me to evaluate it, uh, I'm certainly better than the average person, I think, but I'm going to start making mistakes and I'm, I'm no longer uh, the same type of expert. You put me in a different science. You ask me to start evaluating an experiment in chemistry or biology or something, I'm no better than anybody else. And so expertise, the, the, I think the reason is even if you, you know what it is you're supposed to do, uh, and this is uh, one way of thinking about expertise is, you know, I think the example I use in the book is, is with, with scientific expertise. One of the things that um, you know if you're a scientist is you should pay special attention to anomalous results. When the, the result of an experiment comes in and it's not what you expected, uh, that's really important. That means your prediction was wrong, your, your way of thinking about um, the phenomenon under study was, was not quite right, so there's something really interesting here, there's something to be learned here. Um, but notice that in order for a result to be unexpected, you had to have an expectation. You had to have enough knowledge to be able to predict what was going to happen. And so frequently, we think of skill as, as uh, or, or critical thinking skills as knowing what to do. So you can teach kids something like uh, part of the scientific method is pay close attention to anomalous results, and kids will memorize that and they'll they'll repeat it back to you on a test. But that doesn't mean they can deploy that bit of knowledge in the right way. Uh, for that, you really need domain knowledge most of the time. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about the book, have appreciated about the book, is the the way in which you you understand that we may, and again, you're reading your audience, which is a you know a large part of what you talk about, sort of gauging who might be listening, and you help us think through that process very logically. You can give us mm -hmm. good examples and some understanding. Um, and one of the, I'm going to turn to page 35 because I marked it, uh, you give a list of quotations by great thinkers who denigrate the importance of factual knowledge. 
So at least within the Web 2.0 world, there's this sense, well, you can Google something so you don't need to memorize it. And right. is that following a tradition? I thought that was kind of a new thing, but as it, as it turns out, is that actually a tradition of thought? I don't think it is. I do think it's something new. I think, I think Google in particular, uh, you know, there is this sense that knowledge is immediately available. Uh, in, in ways that it has not been available f before. The, the quotations that you mentioned, um, I really don't know why those folks said that. I mean, it, I really think they were trying to be clever uh, and cute. And so, you know, for example, for folks who don't have the book in front of them, I quote Mark Twain who said, I've never let my schooling interfere with my education. Um, you know, things like that, I, th I, I, don't, I don't really know what uh, what, what they had in mind, but I, the Google point I think is very, very important. It is, it's, it's certainly true that information is much more readily accessible than it was 10 years ago, to say nothing of 25 years ago. Um, but there, there are two, two important caveats on that. The first is that stopping what you're doing and looking something up, uh, if, if, if it's not a fact that you've got in mind, but something you need to look up, this is interrupting your train of thought. Whatever uh, thought process that was, whether you're trying to solve a problem or whatever it is, you're stopping and you're going out to ferret out a piece of information and you're starting again. We know that there's a cognitive cost to that and the likelihood of solving the problem is not the same as it was. The other thing is that understanding what it is that you've looked up, itself requires uh, a fair amount of knowledge. You can't just look something up and if it's an utterly alien field to you, um, what you're looking up is not, gonna, is, is not going to make any sense to you. Um, and actually there's a third aspect of this, which is that with Google in particular, um, being knowledgeable about how to conduct the search often itself requires background knowledge. I mean, we've all had the experience where you're trying to search for something and you, you get two million hits and you don't really know where to begin in, in, uh, in slimming all that down. Um, so there, I, I, I really disagree with the idea that, well, now that, now that we've got Google, we really, that we, there's really no point in learning anything. Now, that said, all that I'm talking here about the importance of knowledge does not mean at all that what school ought to be about is kids memorizing lots of knowledge. When I talk about knowledge being intertwined with critical thinking skills, I think that's what's, what's most important is you want kids to be acquiring knowledge in, the context, in, in a meaningful context, not just memorizing lists of facts. When I read that uh, portion of the book and, and those quotes from, from great thinkers, I, I wondered if, in fact, by virtue of their accumulating a, a, an ability to think that came from sort of the breadth of knowledge that they had, that it was, um, that it was not immediately evident that a lot of that thinking capability had come from the, the breadth of learning that had come before, and that it wasn't intended to be facetious or that or, or wasn't even intended to sort of consciously um, negate the value that had been in their own experiences, but that they were just not fully aware of the degree to which um, their own knowledge and background were allowing them to accomplish certain things. Is that possible? I think I think so. I think so. And I, I think that... Um, 
They, yeah, they're, that's, that's probably an accurate interpretation of it. I mean, who knows exactly what they meant. And I actually did go back and try and look at the context of these quotes to be sure that this was not, that these are all pretty common quotes that you see here and there, but I wanted to be sure that it was not just something pulled out of context uh, and that they had quite different beliefs. But I, I, and, and that isn't the case. But I think your interpretation is, is a good one. Have you read a book called The Talent Code? No. So I'd be very curious to, to, if you do end up reading it, send me a note and let me know your response. But uh, there are two books I read at the same time. One was The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, and the other was um, Jeff Colvin's Talent is Overrated. But I think it's Daniel Coyle who makes the point that there, um, for really deep learning to take place, oftentimes there needs to be a spark. And mm -hmm. so, uh, like here, this quote from Emerson, he, where he says, we are shut up in schools and college recitation rooms for 10 to 15 years and come out at last with a belly full of words and do not know a thing. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if it just meant that, that the spark that then you know, prompted him to become a deep learner just didn't happen in school. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and there are others who uh, have written about this, people who have done um, case studies of uh, people who have achieved uh, great things in athletics and in music and in science. Uh, there have been a number of sort of compendia of, of these sorts of case studies. And that was one of the common threads was that very early on there was some sort of spark. And the interpretation has usually been that the spark is what really drove the motivation to, to keep at this keep working. And I, I, I haven't read the talent, uh, either, either of the books you mentioned. Am I, I, sorry, go ahead. I think you're going to enjoy the talent code for a couple of reasons. One of which is that he looks specifically at the, in the coaching circumstances, at the, at the coaches of the Russian tennis players who have done so well, and at the coaches of the, um, the baseball players in not the Dominican Republic, but there's, there's some small Caribbean nation. And he actually looks at the techniques used by those coaches. And I think you're going to find that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. The other piece is he's looking at the physical changes that take place in the sheathing of neural pathways in the brain and is, is proposing that, there, that with practice and repetition, there is not only, and, and I'm thinking of this specifically because of something you wrote in the book, not only is there an increase, a dramatic increase in the speed of those neural connections where they've been built over time, but there's actually appears to be some ability for the brain to manage the timing of them. Mm -hmm. um, which would seem to indicate that the brain is capable of actually of a physical change which allows for complex timing um, of thoughts and, and actions to take place. Anyway, that's the talent code by Daniel Coyle. Okay. Um, what about the 10,000 hour figure that we see thrown around? There is a, you do, in a section of the book you do talk about. Uh, Steve, I have lost you. I don't know if you can hear me. Frank says he can't hear you either. I am here. Can can folks hear me? I can. I okay, great. I'm not getting any audio at all either.
Now I have to remember what I was talking about. I, I see. Tell us more while while we're waiting. Um, let's see. Oh, we were ta right. Ten thousand hours. Right. There has been uh, quite a bit of work on this, um, and I think most people who are in this field are are pretty persuaded. Whether the specific time is uh, is valid or not, I mean, the the, ten, the particulars of the ten thousand hours uh, figure, I think, is not so important. What uh, what does seem to be important is two things. One is that you do need quite a lot of practice to reach um, levels of uh, you know, levels of expertise that people would identify as as an expert. The other is that it has to be active practice, and this one I think is. Uh, a really important distinction: the distinction between expertise, uh, sorry, between experience and practice. Um, a lot of times, we have the feeling that the more experience you reap, the better off you are. Um, but experience is not really the same thing as practice. Um, practice involves actively trying to get better. Um, whereas experience, you're you're just sort of doing it. You're doing it. You might be doing it for your own pleasure. You might be doing it just to get the job done. Um, and this is very relevant for teaching because uh, there, um, for two reasons. First, in many states, teachers are paid more based on their experience, in the belief that well, experienced teachers are better teachers. The data actually indicate that there are enormous jumps in teacher effectiveness for the first year, then a diminishing jump the second year, and then by about the somewhere between the third year and the fifth year it levels out. And what I've argued in a couple of places is the problem is that teachers are not given any opportunity to practice. They have ample opportunity to gain experience, but in order to practice, teachers need to be able to collaborate. Teachers need to be able to observe other teachers and to be observed and to uh, get um, get feedback on what they're doing well and, and uh, how they might do other things better. Um, and so the 10,000 hour uh, finding, I think, is is certainly relevant to students. But recently, I've been I've been quite interested in in uh, uh, how that plays out in teachers' uh, expertise. So Dan, I think if I'm hoping you can hear me, I switched I to computers and I'm on my backup. I think that's probably a good place for us to go next because I want to go to Q and A, but that sort of seems to me to be kind of the nice uh, finish to the book, which is applying these same principles to uh, teaching mm -hmm. and the need for the same um, skill building. Did you want to say anything more on that before we switch to Q and A? No, I, I mean, I'd just like to reiterate it. This is the hobby horse that I'm riding, riding right now is that I think um, there's a lot of expectation, especially when, when there are all these proposals for merit pay and the, the race to the top funds that the uh, US administration has proposed um, in, a, in order to apply for that. States have to show that they are serious about evaluating teachers and that part of the evaluation has got to be uh, teacher effectiveness measures and so forth. I think it's not very reasonable to expect um, these large increases in teacher effectiveness if there's not built into the job some opportunity for teachers to uh, practice their craft. You, people just can't get better by doing the same thing over and over again. There needs to be a mechanism by which they can practice. Okay, so uh, 
obviously we are not able to drill down on uh, everything that's in the book. One of, uh, you know, I'm, I know I say this every week after I've read a book and, and I'm doing an interview, but really one of the most interesting, enjoyable reads for me in quite a long time. Um, it looks like a number of people may have fallen off the call about the same time I did because we went, we dropped about 25 or 30 uh, people, so we may get some people back. But uh, if, if you did come back, I apologize that you had to do that. So we're going to move to Q&A. And John, if you've raised your hand on purpose, I'm actually going to give you the microphone and let you ask the first question. If you've uh, asked a question in the chat and I haven't seen it, please uh, do so. Again, put it, put it back in the chat so that uh, you can ask Dan if you want in the chat. And John, to turn your mic on, you, there you go. Okay. Um, hi, Dan. I loved your book. Thanks so much. And the question I had been kind of tossing around in the chat window too is that I almost see the whole practice issue which is really important and the project-based issue and the whole issue of like you ask in the book what type of work what type of cognitive work are we asking of the kids? I find those two, just since we have limited time, that they're almost in opposition to each other. That sure, people can say that you can practice in the context of a project, but it's, it's very difficult, especially, like you said, projects can become chaotic and the teacher has to let go a little bit and let variables develop. I'm a science teacher, so kind of the lab develops sometimes on its own over a long period of time, and it's difficult also, the kids are chopping at the bit. It's like, oh, when do we get to do the project? No, no, we got to actually do this problem set just to reinforce. It's, it's just hard. I'm wondering if you have any ideas for how to strike that balance or what signals to look for in the kids that say, okay, it's time to switch to more practice or it's time to switch back to more projects or how to make the two sure. work together. Sure. Well, when it, when it comes to sort of how to spot it in the kids, I would, I would completely yield to the expertise of teachers because I'm not a K-12 teacher. There's an enormous difference between teaching at the college level and, and teaching K-12, so I wouldn't presume to have anything uh, interesting or important to say on that. Regarding the balance, I, I definitely uh, hear what you're saying. I, I, I agree, and I've, I've been trying to look at the chat window a little bit, but the chat's so interesting, I end up not listening to questions and losing my own train of thought. So I've, I've sort of been coming and going on the chat window. Um, but I think that the, um, I think it is possible to do practice in, in project-based learning. I just think it takes tremendous skill. I mean, I've talked with so many teachers who tell me about projects, and when I talk about the difficulty of doing project-based learning, the response of these teachers is, let me tell you what I do. And they outline this project that sounds fantastic. And I say, my god, I would, you know, I would love to be uh, a student in your class. That sounds like great fun. I also know not all teachers are doing that. As I mentioned before, most in fact are not doing it. So what I want to think about is how can we take the expertise of the teacher who's got this fantastic project they're doing and open that up so other teachers are able to um, access that and so that that teacher's expertise and wisdom isn't completely isolated in his or her classroom. And this incidentally, Steve, is where I think Web 2.0 could be tremendously important. If teachers were, if Web 2.0 could be leveraged to allow teachers to share lesson plans in a more interactive way, um, I think that could be uh, tremendously revolutionary for education. 
Yeah, I, I try not to make these interviews a commercial, but LearnCentral.org and other networks are providing platforms, I think, for this kind of sharing that, that are very exciting. I agree. And, and especially, right. hopefully, this kind of a web meeting platform where you can actually say, hey, if you'd like to get together to talk about something, regardless of geography, you can do so. Right. So John, I'm going to take the mic off of you and Jay. It looks like you had a question. And before I give the mic to Jay, I, there are a number of questions coming by. But Karen asked, she says, I have not heard anything I did not already know. What I was hoping to hear is how what you're saying can be implemented in schools. What implementable solutions do you have to the problem of engagement? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I I talk about that. I talk about that a little bit at the uh, in chapter one. Uh, you know, the the title of the book is the title of chapter one. Why don't students like school? And what I argue there is that people are engaged. They're intrigued by problems that are of the right level of difficulty. Problems when when someone presents a problem to you that's trivially easy, it, you may be able to solve it, but it doesn't even feel like a problem. It's not very interesting. You're just retrieving something from memory. When someone presents a problem to you that it's transparent, it, I'll, I could work at this for several hours. I wouldn't make any headway. That also has no appeal. So we're engaged by problems that are of sort of the mid-level of difficulty. What um, I've argued in the book is that uh, engaging 26 students or however many you have in your classroom is tremendously difficult because of their differing backgrounds and their different levels of preparation. Um, and I don't have a, a ready solution to that. That's not something that I think cognitive psychology uh, has, a good, uh, has a good answer to, unfortunately. Although you do, as I recall, and I'm not going to find it at this moment, you do sort of talk about the benefits of uh, sort of small group work and, and trying to group students together at levels where they're going to, to right. find some challenge that's right. appropriate for them, right? I do. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's old stuff for teachers, yeah. OK, so John, um, I'm going to give you the mic. And in order to speak, you click on the microphone button in the audio box. And we're not hearing from John, so I'm going to shift to to Joe. Joe, you can do the same thing. Just click on your microphone button. Can you hear me now? Am I there? I can hear you. Oh, cool. OK. Uh, one of the things that I, I work on is supporting uh, K-6 teachers in using instructional materials that are already published. They're research-based. They're activity-based. Um, and what happens is you get just an enormous level of engagement from the classroom. And I find it amazing that it's not being used uh, you know, broadly across the country. Uh, in the state of Indiana, where I am, the state standards clearly call for engagement of students, and yet people persist in using textbooks, which bore the students to death. And I, and I, I, and the curious thing is, as I listen to what you're saying, I, it seems to me you're probably, I'm guessing, going to support what I'm saying, and yet, in conversations that I've had on, say, the NSTA list about science education, I find people appealing to your book to say, no, 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 uh, engagement isn't the only way to do things, that we also need a lot of direct instruction. And I wonder what you think of that. Sorry, say that again. In addition to engagement, we need what? A lot of direct instruction. Uh, yeah, there's, no, there's, I would not interpret my book as saying direct instruction is the way to go. Um, 
I think, and I've I've written this elsewhere. I don't know if I've I, I don't remember whether I've written it in the book. I think all teaching, you know, less important than the method is how the method is executed. I think it's possible to do direct instruction in ways that's engaging and that students enjoy. I think it's possible to gum up direct instruction terribly. And the same is true of project-based methods and so forth. Any of these methods, none of them are foolproof. I mean, all of them require talent on the part of the teacher to execute properly. And I think my, my sense is that good teachers vary what they're doing depending on the particular content that they're trying to uh, get students to think about um, and based on you know, the student's mood and the time of the day and who the students are and who the, who the teacher is and what, what sort of methods they're comfortable using. It's all this, uh, this uh, complicated mix. Uh, and so, and, and again, so, so the, the role that I see my book as playing is not to deliver absolutes to the teachers or administrators or anybody, but to say, look, here's what we know from laboratory science. I'm the expert in the laboratory. You're the expert in the classroom. Here's how I think it might apply to the classroom. But if a teacher tells me, no, it's not going to work in my classroom, I would, you know, I would never say, well, yeah, actually it will. That, you know, that's, that's ludicrous. Classrooms are just too complicated. So I, I would, uh, if anybody says, well, Willingham says direct instruction is the way to go, uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Dan, I, and to the audience, I have to apologize. With many of you, I got bumped off and and came back on my little netbook. So I'm having a very hard time following the chat. So I've missed, if I've missed your question, please post it again, and I and we'll try and get to it. Um, while we're waiting, Dan, for another uh, question, and I, I do I have one, one I think, waiting in the wings. Do, do, do you? Oh, whoever turned your mic, I'm going to turn it off because that's given us an echo. Thanks, Joe. Um, who are you following? What, uh, uh, what authors or researchers are you reading right now that you feel like uh, it's material that's engaging to you? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm, um, I mostly read journals, and so I, um, I, do, read, I do read some books, um, but I don't, uh, uh, no, nobody springs to mind as I think this person is is really on to something that uh, a lot of people are ignoring. I mean, I, I try and pace uh, a, a very, very broad array of, of journals in cognitive science, neuroscience, education. Uh, so I'm constantly reading a, a mix of things. So um, I'm not sure I'm going to say this name correctly, but Charles Fidel or Fadel. Uh, you're in the audience now, and, I'm, and I actually think we're going to be doing an interview with you later on your book, 21st Century Skills. Do you want to grab the mic and make a connection between anything Dan said and what you might um, might be in your book? I might, and if I, uh, there you go. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Hi, Dan. Hi, Charles. Um, and thank you, Steve. Um, actually, in spite of what has been uh, in the press, there's a lot more agreement between uh, between me and Dan than has been reported. And uh, perhaps I'll use the session that you're proposing to clarify all of that. Great. I love it when people agree well, with me. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan, Charles. Yeah. And tell, Charles say, say your last that. name for us so we know. Sorry, Fadel, as simple as that. Fadel. 
And you know, it basically, if, if I may editorialize just a bit, uh, you know, there's a false, false dichotomy about knowledge or skill. I mean, we completely agree with Dan. There's no such thing as skill that's devoid of knowledge. As simple as that. So I'll, I'll say it clearly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's and we also know that project uh, learning is hard, and very often it has been used in the past for, in a sense, goof off sessions. And we also agree with Dan on that. So it's really in the finer grain about how it is all done. We also are delighted to hear that he's not saying it all has to be didactic. Um, thinking back about the Mark Twain comment, I think where we, got all, we get all tripped up is because all of these comments are taken as absolutes. And they use very strong words like never or always or whatever, which, by the way, as uh, usually married individuals, we've learned never to use with our spouses, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah, these blanket statements are what really get us in trouble. And uh, I, I'm sure that as we discuss the details with Dan, we'll all find out that uh, we, we are all reasonable people agreeing on probably 90% of the approach. Thank you, Charles. I'll look forward to the Your book is uh, 21st Century Skills with uh, Bernie Trilling, and uh, we'll look forward to scheduling that and, and having you on the show soon. So Dan, I'm going to put up the link to your website in the chat so that people can, uh, I'm actually back on my regular machine, so I have the capability of doing that. Um, but there's uh, Dan's website. The book is Why Students Don't Like School. Um, we've got time, I think, for one more question. Uh, while, we're, while we're waiting for someone to raise their hand or put the question in the chat, I'm going to move us forward on the screens. Here and you should be seeing that uh, we're sponsored by Learn Central, and uh, please feel free to sign up and get your free Illuminate room and consider holding your own webinar series. And then our interview schedule coming up uh, this Thursday with uh, Curtis Bonk, and then on Tuesday Frontline with um, Frontline's Digital Nation with Rachel Dredson. So hey, uh, May, can, I, thanks. can I make one quick yeah. comment before we uh, get to the final question? I just want to mention that I've seen all these questions. Um, flying by in text, and if, if anyone, uh, I'm sorry I haven't been able to respond to everybody. Anybody who wants to just shoot me an email uh, with a question you have for me, I'm uh, I'm here at the end of the semester, so I can't promise a rapid response, but I'm always happy to talk with folks. So I'm just Willingham at Virginia.edu, and I'm I'm glad to talk with anybody uh, through email. That's very generous, and I've put it up in the chat. Awesome. Um, I do. There was a comment here. Um, you know that uh, we're engaging here. Uh, that's, this is why Web 2.0 is so great. Carol says, look how engaged we all are. I do find it relatively fascinating that these technologies are allowing us to, to participate in certain activities that maybe previously uh, took place with much less frequency. And just the idea that, that you and Charles could be on the line together and talking back and forth, or that you could connect here with, which were at one point over 100 people, um, mm -hmm. and, and get this kind of feedback. For me, this is really fun. And, and I think that this portends a really bright future, because we do have different perspectives and understanding. And, and you bring your cognitive psychologist hat in a very thoughtful way to the discussion, and it becomes a part of the larger dialogue. And, and in what I think is an enormously healthy um, opportunity to, to rethink and to think about what we're doing. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, we I are. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So uh, Jeff's asking, can we access the program later in the chat? Yes, uh, you can access the program later. Wherever you saw the 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 initial. 
um, listing of the program, whether it was in futureofeducation.com or learncentral.org, uh, you can, uh, the recording will be up um, later tonight, probably, the, the full recording, both the chat and the uh, audio version and the full Illuminate version. Because we do want to be sensitive to to Dan's time. I think we'll close now. And please do feel free to email him at the address that's uh, in the chat. And I'll put that in one more time if you've got that. Dan, that was a generous offer. I'm going to clap for you now because this is the moment <laughs> to clap. And so that little Thank clapping hand at the you. bottom of your participant window, that, uh, this is the time that. to use it. Hey, so nice to have you on. Thanks, thanks for what, what are now sort of two significant moments of engagement with you both from the Britannica blog and now having been able to, to read your book and, and have you on as a guest. Really appreciate uh, all that you have to offer and so glad that you've taken the time today. Thank you so much. This was really fun and, and thanks to everybody who participated. And again, I wish I could have uh, interacted with everybody directly and, and hope to uh, chat with some of you over email. Okay, so thanks, Dan, so much. And thanks to you who've come. Uh, we do have this new tradition of 15 or 20 minutes afterwards for post-show talk. Dan, please feel free to just go. Uh, you've done your, your duty, and you uh, should feel very good about that. But if you, those of you who would like to hang around, we'll open the mics up and give you a chance to talk to each other for 15 or 20 minutes before we close things down. So again, uh, thanks, Dan. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And those of you who'd like to stick around, you're welcome to stick around and talk. If you do want to exit the program, all you do is to close your full Illuminate window or go up to File and Exit to exit the session. Debating, but I so think how many people? Sorry, I, yeah, I, think I, I think I am going to have to exit because I've, uh, it's 5 o'clock here on the East Coast and I've got kitties waiting for me at home. So cheers to all and Steve, well, thanks will, again for the opportunity. Thank you, Dan. Okay, so I'm curious from those of you who did get bumped off, um, was it hard for you to get back in? The, my backup machine stayed up, which was interesting to me, but it was through my Verizon network, whereas my main machine um, went off. And it took about 10 minutes for that to come back. Did anybody else have a long gap and, and actually make it back? If anybody wants to, you can grab the mic. I'm giving everybody microphone privileges. Carol had to close entirely out. Did it all happen about the same time? I'm trying to identify if whether it was a, um, I don't think it could have been a server issue for Illuminate because I did, many of us stayed logged in. So I'm thinking it probably had to do with some pathway in the internet that must have gone down. People shopping. <laughs> So who's so read, who's read uh, uh, those of you who, 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 oh, I've got oh, some echo here, so whoever that is. That is. Sounds like something. Michelle, would you like to talk? Okay, so. So Jay, it's really hard to hear you. It's very scratchy coming through. So I'm curious for those of you who read the book, what you thought of the session today.
turn microphones off because we're getting a lot of feedback. So do raise your hand if you want to take the mic, and I'll give you the mic individually. Yeah, I mean, obviously, John, this is very difficult because there's uh, there's some in the book. The book doesn't look like it's going to have that much in it. It almost looks like it's going to be a quick read, but then you open it up, and the type is very small, and the, it's just full of uh, really phenomenal material, and uh, I think presented in a really thoughtful way. I think he's followed his own um, principles in presenting the material. Some had read the book and some had not. Of those of you who are still listening, some 44 of you may or may not still be listening, but why don't you put a green check in if you had read the book or portions of it, and a red X if you had not. So a green check if you read the book in advance, and a red X if you're not. And the question then is, uh, uh, you know, an interesting one from the perspective of how we run the series. Do if we recommend that people read the book before the interview, I'm, I think honestly, most people will not. So the interview does end up being something of an introduction to the work. For those of you who read the book, my guess is you probably wanted to dive deeper in some areas. So what would be a good way to balance that? Some more had not read the book than had. Well, that's a good idea, Peggy, or Deb. Questions submitted in advance. You know, one of the things I really liked about the interview that we did with um, Halverson and Collins on rethinking education in the age of technology is that there seemed to be a real interest on their part afterwards in continuing the discussion, maybe having another session. So maybe we accept that for the first time through it's going to be more of an introduction. And then from that point on, if the author wants author or authors want to come back, you could do a more in-depth session. So another thing I'm very curious to hear back from those who are still here is, do you like an hour, or would you prefer a half hour? I went to my first conference this past summer. It was the Merlot conference in California. And you know, normally conference sessions are an hour, and they had half hour conference sessions. And I thought I was going to hate it. But I actually really liked it because it it made for things being faster and crisper. But I'm I'm not ready yet to to whittle down this hour because I feel like there's so much that happens in the second half of the hour that I would miss. Yeah, 45 minutes, Cheryl. That's right. What about 45 minutes? I don't know. I think people think, I mean, I can get a speaker to commit for an hour, I and mean, it's very generous on their part to come. 
So Rasha, and I'm going to give you the mic. I think you're raising your hand. To turn your mic on, you click on the microphone button in the audio box. So why don't children says, I found this too flabby, not tight enough. Would like two 30-minute sessions, just like Dan suggested. So 4 p.m. Eastern is a good time. So, so that's interesting because mostly I hear from educators that they have a hard time listening during the day. But we've got a good audience today. For those of you in the U.S., do you prefer the evening or a daytime session? She also says, I don't attend during the evening. Damn, interesting. Well, and we're probably going to have a biased view from this group here because you did come during the day and you could stay for the post-show. Peggy, daytime. Too many conflicts in the evening with other sessions. So I wonder about those who are in the, in, uh, on, the, on the west coast of the U.S. You know, all of the EdTech Talk webcasts are in the evening. Yeah, so I'm wondering if we ask this question during one of our evening sessions, if we would get people say they just can't attend during the day. So maybe we just alternate. <laughs> oh, everything gets complicated, doesn't it? Sorry, North America. North and South America. That's a good idea, looking, looking at the map. We are getting a nice contingent from um, India. I think they've come in through the Flat Classroom Project. So I'm going to clear the poll. Let's do one last poll here. Um, John's suggesting teachers versus ed tech. So I'm going to change this to not green check and red X because that will have connotations. But let's say if you're a teacher A, if you're a tech or IT person B, or if you're something else C. So A for teacher, B for tech or IT, C for other. Yeah, and I think as, Peggy, as we get more and more webinars where the technology becomes easier and easier to use, we are likely to see additional conflicts and just know that, like everything else, you know, we'll just be picking and choosing. Okay, I'm going to now show the poll here. Polling. So it doesn't look like we've got any responses for Tech IT, all teachers or other.
Right. Yeah, so Kim, look at the, um, well, for the other speakers, Ron, I'm wondering if you're thinking of, um, Carrie's asking, do you have a schedule for when other speakers are on? Peggy, would you mind putting in the chat the calendar that we keep that shows the different shows on one calendar, the one from um, Classroom 2.0 Live? So if you go to that link, uh, we've tried to create a place where you can see the different shows, including ones that we don't run, just so that you know what's going on. And I think we're going to see more and more and more activity. I, quite candidly, I've probably got 10 or 12 organizations who are very interested in running webinar series. And I think once they start, you know, we're going to see just wonderful, rich content uh, available for free. Where we'll just happen to be we'll have to be picking and choosing. So John asked, do I do all of this as a volunteer? I actually started this futureofeducation.com interview series um, as a volunteer, but I did get some funding from KnowledgeWorks Foundation. And then when I took this job at Illuminate, I obviously was a big fan of Illuminate because I was using the platform before coming to work for them. I've just continued to run. I don't, it's not a specific part of my job title, but I think it's understood that it has value. I read some great books. I've been traveling recently, and I've read some wonderful books that I can't wait to to do sessions on. One was a book called Connected: The Surprising Power of Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives. A lot of um, Deb says that the speakers want to. Yes, everybody who speaks does not get paid, so that says a lot about them. It's really impressive that they do that. But I've read a lot of fun books. Um, more books than we have time for. And it does sound like we're going to have a great group in Australia start doing their own um, professional development series that's very Australia time zone friendly. Can't wait to help that happen. You know what I thought of doing is, um, well, I need to I need to take the list of books that I've got. I, I should take a picture of my desk. I'd be totally embarrassed to do so at the moment, but uh, I must have 50 books stacked up in different piles based on subject matter. And what I need to do is to put them into one of the book services so that they're they can be um, linked to futureofeducation.com and conversations.net, and people can respond there. Does um, anybody have a, do you like Shelfari? Does Shelfari the preferred place, or does anybody use a different service?
I am a little bit stunned by the um, Kindle software program that's available for the PC because of this feature of being able to download the first few chapters of a book. And um, it's like being in a bookstore. You can actually read some of the book to decide if you want to buy it or not. You don't have to buy it from Kindle. You can just decide that you like the book. And, and for me, I make so many notes in a book I want on a hard copy. You know, some people are using Kindle on the iPhone. Can you get the previews? I'm assuming you can. I know people who are reading books on their kin on their um, iPhones, full books. For me, I just have to write. Uh, my reading process is about making lots of notes in a book. So when I'm done with a book, uh, it actually becomes sort of a living document for me. So I would really miss that. OK, so why don't we wrap up? Right, so not learning styles, what is it? <laughs> You've got to read that chapter on learning styles. Uh, you know, of, of course, I'm so buried uh, in everything that I do that that was one of the chapters that I did not read in full. And I was mad at myself because I really wished I had. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Sure fun to have you here. And I'll go ahead and close out. I have to close everybody out of the room in order for the recording to process. That was delightful today. Thanks for your participation. Dan's not here, but thanks to Dan for such an interesting book. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I know, Deb, uh, I think a lot of us had got dropped today. And I don't know that it was actually Illuminate today because my one computer that was on my Verizon broadband stayed up, but my home computer did not, which was on another connection. I'm wondering if it was actually some pipe, internet pipe, and other times as well. Sorry about that. Okay, so if you exit out, just close you know, different browser response. I don't know. It's not browser-based. It's, it's really it's running Java once it's up. Okay, to close down, go ahead and uh, click the red X at the top right of your screen. Close down your window. Or if you're in Mac, I don't know what it looks like. Or go to File and Exit. And then I'm going to close out so the recording will process. Next session, uh, Thursday, two days from now, uh, at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. I believe that's 1 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And it'll be Curtis Bonk. Take care, everybody. Bye.